This is Marketing Smarts, a podcast committed to helping you become a savvier marketing leader, no matter your level. In each episode, we will dive into a relevant topic or challenge that marketing leaders are currently facing. We will also give you practical tools and applications that will help you put what you learn into practice today. And if you missed anything, don't worry. We put worksheets on our website that summarize the key points. Now, let's get to it. Welcome to Marketing Smarts. I am Ann Candido. And I am April Martini. And today we're going to talk about how to tell compelling stories that get attention. As brands and businesses, there are many stories we like to tell. We like to tell our origin story. We like to tell stories about the work we have done for clients. We like to tell stories about our amazing brands and services. And we like to tell stories about accolades and accomplishments. And we hope in telling these stories that those who matter to us will engage and want us. Because ultimately, we are trying to capture hearts and minds in the hopes of growing our popularity and in so doing, obviously, our businesses as well. Yes, but there's a difference between telling a story and telling a compelling story. And that big difference is in telling a compelling story, you have to intimately know your audience, the category you're in, and the culture. So that way the story can create an emotional connection. And this goes for all marketing channels. It's across all of them, from the about page on your website, to digital, to the content on your social, to PR. It's all of those things. Because this is how brands and businesses rise above the noise and then get attention. And it's also how they differentiate in their category and create a following of ambassadors and evangelists, which is when you know you have really made it when people are speaking on your behalf. That is correct. And we have a special guest today to help us dive into this topic and someone I go way back with, and it's probably going to tell some stories about me, I'm sure, um, but is very talented in creating compelling stories that get attention. And that's Mike Duray, Managing Director of Smarts Agency. Hey, Mike, you want to introduce yourself? Yes. Hello. Hi, Ann. Hi, April. Thank you so much for uh, for having me on. Um, it's not, not polite to uh, to talk about how far back we go, Ann, so we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll just leave it in sort of broad strokes. <laughs> and maybe by some of the stories we tell, people will be able to piece it together <laughs> based on <laughs> who was playing for the Bengals at the time. Oh, geez. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I would, would love to introduce myself. So as uh, as you said, I'm now the uh, managing director for a uh, cultural comms agency called Smarts. Um, I came to Smarts by way of uh, a few different things, but uh, most recently um, I worked in-house for almost 10 years at Diageo. So uh, for six of the, the previous seven years, I was actually based in the Netherlands in Amsterdam, where I ran the um, uh, culture and entertainment for Johnny Walker globally. Uh, prior to that, I had a similar role uh, on the US team at Diageo, where I looked after, uh, among other things, Crown Royal, Bullet Bourbon, uh, George, Dis- George Dickel, Tennessee whiskey. Um, and then prior to that, which is where we intersected in, I was at uh, an agency called Taylor, uh, which I'm guessing you may have uh, may have been mentioned on this podcast before, if not uh, featured some of the the folks from that agency. But I was mm-hmm. uh, I was there for about eight years um, prior to uh, to going in house. So that's uh, sort of everything wrapped up in uh, in reverse, uh, and have been uh, back on the agency side now, uh, coming up on I want to say what is it uh, almost June, so 15 months, 16 months. Um, started this when I moved back to the U.S. Uh, in early 2021. Well, and if everybody was doing their math, that puts you at about 60 years old, right? 
That's right. <laughs> I was going to say, you said we're not going to go there because like it's it. not polite, and then you did it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, that's awesome. No, that's yes. And so um, we're very excited to have you on because this is obviously a topic that you know a lot about. And just to be totally transparent, this framework that we're going to be talking about is one that you gave me. And it is something that we preach as well. So there's a lot of similarities and parallels. But just to honor the conversation, I felt very important to say that. So oh, I appreciate that. Yeah. yeah and, I, and I don't I don't think I have a, uh, a corner on the uh, on the philosophy, but um, I, I do. Uh, I do like that um, it's framed in this way for sure. Yeah. And I think it's going to really help our listeners be able to really like tangibly put into their brain, too. So with that, let's jump into how to tell compelling stories that get attention. And the very first point is to define your audience. So we talk a lot about this being a place to start, but many, many, many folks skip this. And are always a big question is why? And it's usually because they want to tell a story that they want to tell versus telling the story that the audience actually cares about and wants to hear. So true. Yeah. And this is a big distinguishing factor because compelling stories start from the point of what your audiences want to hear, not what you necessarily want to tell them. And it's really important to understand that not just the demographics of your audience, but the psychographics. And we talk about this all the time, too, because this really helps you uncover opportunities for engagement that really transcends any demographic stat. So I'll use an example from my tie days. Like I always use a gazillion examples from my tie days. But, you know, Mr. DeRay worked with me on my tie days, so he'll have something to add on this, too. So... Tide focus, much of their branding on women, I think like the age range is usually like 24 to 44. And we qualified them by having a family with multiple younger kids. Most of the time they were the primary shopper and they were also the laundry door. So this gets at a big part of the population as a place to start. And it's better than saying we are for everybody, which is the other default, right? And yes, laundry detergent Everybody does laundry, needs laundry detergent, but that doesn't help you really hone in in order to be able to tell a very compelling story, right? Because that is still way, way, way too broad. So you have to dig deeper and really mine the insights. So this is where we came up with these concepts like busy moms. You know, busy mom starts to feel really tangible. They don't have time spending doing laundry. They want to make sure the stains come out the first time, and they're actually willing to pay more for that. So you could start seeing where tie starts fitting in along with the category as well. Then it was about busy moms who really care about how their kids look and didn't want their kids showing up at school or practice with stains all over their clothes. Right. So that became like a pride element. It became an emotional connection for them. And so this also became something that dads actually participated in, too. So now all of a sudden we're not just talking to busy moms. We're talking to busy dads and busy parents in general. So you can see here the difference in more of the latter being more of an emotional engagement and kind of tied saving the day here versus like a very functional and very mechanical process of removing stains, which is the basic functioning of laundry detergent, but isn't going to be what sells your brand at the end of the day. And this is actually the same for B2B clients, too. Um, and this is what you have to think about in the context of who you are selling to and from a client side versus necessarily a customer or a consumer side. And so this happens a lot for April and I when people ask us and they ask us a lot, well, 
what size businesses and industries do you target? You know, and they always ask for revenue numbers or people numbers. And we always say it's not about that. So the people that really want us are people who have very lean marketing teams or Maybe they have a young marketer who's kind of still green, or maybe they have somebody who's wearing multiple hats, and maybe marketing is just one of them. So this is actually what the psychographic element is, that it kind of expands across all industries. And along with that is a mentality that, you know, these people want to do really good marketing. They're very ambitious. They want to look good. They want to perform well. They want their businesses to perform well, but they're humble enough to know that maybe they don't know the best. So this is where we really gravitate our business towards. And it's typically small and medium-sized businesses, but it could be across industry, which is why we have a portfolio of business across industries. Yeah, and a couple of things that I think really are important to hit on here is first, when Anne talked about, you know, we yes, everyone uses laundry detergent. I always think in terms of the phrase, if you try to be everything to everyone, you're going to be nothing to no one. And so that's really the sort of watch out there, right? And as you heard her go through it, she really started to drill down into not just demographics, but you start to get into insights. What are those true pain points? And so that's the other point that I want to make here is going back to the idea of not just telling the story you as the company or the business want to tell, making sure that you are telling the story the way that the consumer wants to hear it. And it really is based on that insight of what is that pain point that they're suffering from and how are you, whatever brand business you are, going to solve that for them by their terms? Yeah, Mike. Mike, what do you have to say about this one? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I agree. With, I agree with all of it, uh, and then some. I mean, I think the, you know, the thing that I try to remind myself, and even more so when I was on the on the client side, you spend as a brand person, you spend, you know, at minimum eight hours a day thinking about your product, and and after a very short amount of, of time. You, you wake up thinking that everybody else must be thinking about your product as well as soon as they as soon as they jump out of bed it's no matter <laughs> what that product is because it you know it, it has completely taken over your life so you're, it's only natural to think that uh, the, the rest of the world is just waiting with bated breath to hear what you have to say and and when you say it like that obviously that that sounds ridiculous but it's easy for, uh, for brands and for people on those brands to fall into that trap and and to be consumed um, by this one product, this one thing. So, you know, really what what I've always tried to do, uh, and especially what I try to help my clients do now, is just think about, um, you know, there's there's a few tricks that um, that we try, and and I'm guilty of this, and I'll probably say the word 10, 15 times before the end of this conversation as we all will, which is consumer. So we mm -hmm. immediately reduce people down to the things that they buy. And in doing that, um, you sort of you sort of forget about everything else that they have going on in their life. So as soon as you call a person a consumer, you've you've essentially divorced them from everything else that's happening in their lives that could potentially be an emotional uh, connection point for your brand. So it's very limiting to think that way, but you know, how often every day do we all say it? And probably, you know, 10 other buzzwords that, that actually sort of erode our ability to, uh, to really make deep connections with our, with our target audience. And, you know, from an insight perspective, and I think you, you stop short of, of, 
one of probably the most emotionally charged campaigns that I ever had the the uh, luxury to work on, which was the Thanks Mom campaign mm-hmm. um, that surrounded the uh, the Olympics in Vancouver. I think was the was the first time that that came about, and it was it was everything every insight that you said that sort of culminated into this. Uh, you know, it still gives me goosebumps when I think about it. How powerful that campaign was, just built on this insight that that moms are the backbone of the family, and that's that's all the farther it had to go. You know, it didn't it didn't need to get into you know the key the key product elements or things like that. It was just so emotionally rich that everybody immediately understood uh, what P and G was talking about at the time. So, you know, I still use that as a, as a case study for myself as, you know, as we're looking for insights into audience and, you know, what could potentially move them to consider one brand or, or one company over another. Well, and I think you bring up a really good point there because when you think about the amount of time that went in and then the consistency by which that brand was built through the lens of the consumer, like we're talking here, it really allowed for the ability for the brand to own that in a very authentic way, which I think for it to stand out that much with something like the Olympics and take on that emotional impact that it had, it shows you that when you do this right and you do define based on the audience, that's where really that magic can happen. Absolutely. Yeah, and I don't know about everybody else, but I definitely wake up thinking about tequila, so I don't mess with <laughs> Well, I certainly do if I drank it the night before. I, I... <laughs> but, you know, but you make a very good point, and, and you did too as, um, as well, April, which is like it's a choice that you're making, right? And it's very, very hard sometimes to make that choice because we feel like we're alienating groups. And, you know, and, and when you brought, you know, thank you, Mom, that was a real – big choice that we made because it could be thank you dad which eventually Gillette evolved into a little bit and or thank you you know grandma and thank you grandpa I mean and we did have to face a lot of that flack about being alienating to other groups of people that have had a significant impact to um, their their kids and their kids development and it wasn't in the fact that we were trying to alienate it's that we wanted to celebrate a specific group right but if we had tried to do it oh thank you mom thank you dad thank you you know everybody else it starts to feel very diluted and i think you guys have done this really well especially when you're talking about your spirits and the liquor brands where it has to be a very specific demographic that you're trying to appeal to like you can't have these spirits mean everything to everybody and i know i'm taking you back a little bit but i'm sure that was a huge challenge that you guys had to face in that category yeah a, an unbelievable challenge and it was especially in whiskey so whiskey is a lot like wine you know there is there's rabbit holes to to fall down in that category that people have a really hard time getting out of and um, you know, it's so nuanced with where the water comes from and mm-hmm. what type of barrels it's aged in and, you know, how many years it's been aged and the types of grains that go into it and the blender that was connected to it. And and it's all very, very interesting, but it, it that only appeals to a very niche part of your potential audience. So it's easy to get lost in those things. And it's not unimportant because it speaks to quality and, um, you know, it speaks to the provenance of the brand, but really for you know, for brands like Crown Royal or Johnny Walker, which are, you know, massive uh, global brands, um, you know, you have to you have to be able to rise above that and you have to be able to convey all the all the the provenance, all the product quality without losing people. And that's where, you know, what we really looked at, you know, obviously audience first. 
but then what are the occasions? So what are the moments where our product can intersect? Um, and that's, that becomes your drink strategy. And when I was, um, when I was on the global team at Johnny Walker, we, there was a huge sort of shift in how people were consuming whiskey and mm-hmm. especially scotch. So there was a boom in the, uh, in the whiskey industry over the course of, you know, now going back probably 15 years. Um, and quite honestly, it was, it left scotch behind. So bourbon was growing very fast and Canadian and Japanese whiskey and scotch was being left behind. And it was essentially because as a category, um, as a category of brands, we became prisoners of our own making with rules and, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, you know, certain things can only be, be consumed neat or with ice or out of a certain glass. And, you know, we created this prison for ourselves that was very hard to recruit people into because it's just not the way people were consuming whiskey anymore. You had this, you had this, um, you know, massive, uh, uh, classic cocktail renaissance and, and, and mixology as a, as a legitimate profession and things that, you know, people were getting into and it just opened up mix the mixing of whiskey and scotch was sort of left behind. So that was a big part of, of my job over the course of the six, seven years I was there was really country by country, figuring out how we were going to shift the, the consumption moments for a brand like Johnny Walker, which, you know, it's, it's a blessing and a curse to have a 200 year old brand that comes with all sorts of heritage, which embeds the quality. Uh, but it's really hard to, to change people's behavior when you have a brand that is, uh, that comes with that amount of, uh, in some cases, baggage um, that you're trying to undo. So it, we, we did so much uh, research and um, on the ground sort of, you uh, you know, studies trying to figure out, you know, how we could best engage with people and then rising above that, you know, pulling ourselves out of product and into purpose. All right. All right. So mm-hmm. it's a whiskey, but as a brand, what do we stand for and what types of things are we going to sponsor and what, what types of cultural moments, which I know, you know, we'll come on to that part of it, but it's really, you know, maybe to, to tie this in a bow from an audience perspective, that's where it starts. You have to meet people mm-hmm. where they are. Yep. And as far as Scotch was concerned, they just weren't drinking it neat in leather chairs next to fires and bookcases anymore. So they we had weren't? to move on from that. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's a true testament to defining your audience, but also a true testament to the second point, which is knowing your category. And uh, you you use the alcohol ana- analogy, but I'll also use the, the beauty analogy. And I think both work very well here, which is there's a time, and I think we still kind of live in it a little bit, where everybody wants to play like a beauty brand or an alcohol brand because it's sexy and it's sensual and it's an emotional. And it also has the impression like of almost like what you just described as being a little like that swagger or, you know, it's more modern or it's more like, you know, in the case of beauty, it's a little bit more forward thinking. So everybody kind of tries to play on those cues, but the problem is, is when they try to force it, it becomes an issue because it becomes an irrational kind of 
way to try to think about it. And so people kind of disregard it, right? So you can't make some brands feel sexy by giving it beauty cues, or you can't make some brands feel like very like self-affair by having it be more of an alcohol brand. It just, it doesn't work. If it can't, if somebody can't rectify it in their brain, it's never going to get to their, their heart, right? So we've seen businesses and brands really, really try to do this. Um, and it comes off looking very inauthentic. Why it, and that's why it's so important to be very, very grounded in your category, which the, what you just went through and how you try to understand even the whiskey and the scotch categories in order to understand how to make the brand play is a really, really fantastic example of that. And that doesn't mean, I mean, like, you know, obviously beauty and alcohol are, you know, seem quote unquote to be easy. They're not. We'll just tell you that. But it doesn't mean if you have like a sleepier brand that you can't be creative. And really, in fact, that's where the challenge is. And that's because that's where the differentiation comes from. I mean, if you don't or aren't able to differentiate, you're just going to really stay in that commoditized zone. And then, you know, you kind of are really subject to pricing as a, as a a only way of people to, to make a, a choice on you. So, the important thing is to become a brand so that you can rise above all of that noise and really then leverage your brand in a very authentic way to differentiate in your category. And so people have asked us, what's important to know about your category then? How do I think through this? And so I'm going to give you a couple of points here. And then, Mike, I'm going to ask you to, to build on this. Mm-hmm. So um, first is, and you've articulated this very nicely, how does your audience become aware of you? Where are they looking for you? How do they become indoctrinated into your category? How and where do they engage? I mean, if they don't like to be on Twitter, then you being on Twitter probably doesn't make any sense. What are their expectations regarding your brand business category? And then as April mentioned in the very first point, like what are their frustrations or where are their wish for it? Where's those tensions? And then even on the other side, like what are the opportunities? Where can the category stretch? And think about that. A lot of people don't like to go to the fringes because it feels a little bit too dangerous, but that's actually where a lot of the opportunities are. And then why do people leave the category or opt out? And where are they going? I mean, if you think about Airbnb and Uber, I mean, the fact that they've been able to really like come into the category and transform it. I mean, people are leaving hotels to go to this thing that they didn't even believe could have existed, you know, 10, 15 years ago, right? And I think the the important thing here is to be careful not to try to reinvent their wheel. Um, there needs to be some familiarity to anchor back into the category. And I we always use this example of even just agencies. Like there's a big dilemma over the word agency. And you've heard us both today, both Mike and us, talk about the fact that we still call ourselves agencies. And we get that there's some baggage associated with that. But the problem is if we try to redefine agency, we spend most of our time trying to explain what we are then. And so (laughs) it's like it's not even worth it. We don't even get to like what we can do because we're trying to tell people, well, how we are an agency and how we're not an agency and really what all they want is an agency. So the important thing here is sometimes you have to have to embrace it, but you just show up differently in order to really bring it to life. So, Mike, can you speak more to how you really embrace this idea of category and how you guys help your clients think through this? Yeah, I think there's a few things in there. I mean, one is, um, and uh, I'm sure it's a a book we've all read or heard excerpts from, and the name now is escaping me, but it's the... You know what was born out of that book was the leaky the leaky bucket philosophy uh, mm-hmm, of consumers. Mm-hmm. So the, this idea that people are loyal to a brand uh, is just sort of um, an antiquated notion in some respects. Certainly, people will have affinities for brands, and and that will never change. 
but there's just so much option. You're better off just thinking that you have to recruit constantly and you have to recruit somebody every single time. And when you start to think that way, I, I really, I, I found that moment when that was sort of introduced to us, a really sort of freeing way to think about, you know, how we were going to market our products and our brands. And, and it allowed us, uh, you know, certainly it's, it's very important to understand the category you're in, but when you go into um, which is where most of the brands that I work with now are into a recruitment mindset. Um, it can take you anywhere culturally and, and it can take you out of the category that you think that you're confined to. So if you, if you take that into spirits, you know, the, the example that I always come back to, and I don't know, I'm, I'm going to make up a year, let's call it 2011. It feels about right. Um, you know, we were doing our, our annual plan for crown Royal and, um, you know, we would do our audience segmentation and it was something to the effect that, you know, this is Brian, he's 29 years old. He loves the Dallas Cowboys more than life itself. And, and, you know, how do we get Brian to go from six drinks a year to nine drinks a year? And then Cowboys having a bad season. Right, right. And then over the course of the next year, that 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 thought process went away. It's like how not how we get Brian to drink five drinks more. How do we get five more people to try us? Mm-hmm. And that and that allows us to, you know, recruit from what was traditionally a vodka category or beer or, um, you know, so so it really does. When you think that way, it sort of it sort of opens things up quite a bit um, in my mind and that there are some risks that come with that. You can, you can be caught just, you know, chasing butterflies off in it and every direction, um, you know, when you're not grounded into, you know, some of the cues that, that, that have to exist within the category. But I do think it's a, uh, it's a manageable dance and, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's the, it's one of the backbones of, of what we, um, what we try to convey to our clients now. Well, and I love that approach because I think that what it does is it protects you from becoming a sleepy brand, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you always feel like you have to be introducing new people to your brand, you have to make sure that you're staying relevant and that you're coming up with new ways because you're trying to attract new consumers. Now, I think your point is well taken on you could chase butterflies in all directions and you could be chasing all kinds of different audiences. But I think the point here is that you're doing it in an informed way. You're just broadening your perspective about what you're doing through the lens of audience and category. And going back to the idea of category and whether we're referencing everyone to be like alcohol or everyone wanting to be like beauty, I think what happens there is brands get lazy. And so they do mm-hmm. what is in theory, the right thing, which is go look at other categories, who's doing well, what's the new shiny thing, all of that. But then they don't do the hard work to say, what would this mean for my consumer and the audience I'm trying to target that would help me stand out different in the category? And so they just layer on an approach that somebody else did without thinking through, this is the authentic way to get at that for me. And so I think when you're always thinking in that mindset, it works a whole lot better than just, okay, I'm going to borrow this from over over here and put it on top of what I'm doing. Yeah, or or even worse, just sticking your logo on a on a step and repeat banner and and <laughs> yeah. calling and calling that an activation of, uh-huh. of sorts. So you have to do the work of figuring out how you know the the key things that your brand wants to say and needs to say get a, come across in the, the different directions that you go. But that's the work, that, and that's what you know. That that's really what I've sort of attached myself to over the years was 
you know, that, that's where, that's what gets me going in the morning, knowing that I'm not going to, cause it, there was a time, especially in booze where, and especially in whiskey, you know, there's like five or six and being sort of straddling the earned media um, side of things along with the cultural output. I had to spend so much time, you know, talking to and making sure they were happy, like four whiskey writers. And at a certain point, you're like, <laughs> I don't care about these guys. And I'm starting not to care about their audience because I could probably mm-hmm. name them all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and it's just such an oversized amount of time that you spend when you get lost in your category. Um, you know, I understand why you kind of have to stay somehow grounded to it, but it's, it's not where I wanted to be and, and certainly not uh, now where I would tell the, you know, the, the culturally forward thinking clients that I have to, uh, to go. Yeah, I think that's a really, really fantastic point. And I think the anchor within your category continues to be your brand, right? And, you know, it, as you're doing this, you're not like reinventing the brand, you're refreshing the brand, you're kind of giving it new life, you're, you're bringing some, uh, some, some newness to it that makes somebody to be more aware. But the other opposite side of that track, which some people swing way back far the other way, is to do like product skew chasing, right? So they're so into it, listening to their consumers, which is fantastic. But as soon as their consumer says, I want this, they decide that that's what they're going to go do, right? So it's always it's, it's important to be anchored in your category, but not to be, as you guys said, like totally like wedded to it and thinking that's the only way I can really survive, but also to really be knowledgeable and, and, and authentic to your brand so that you can make those good decisions where you can say, hey, like what who these like whiskey writers are writing to is probably not what my brand needs. My brand needs this instead. But I just wanted to make that point to be careful not to do skew chasing well, it's a, because it's, that it's a great a problem, it's a right? great point yeah and to bring it back to to spirits again which um, I'm cognizant that's that's where a lot of my examples will will ultimately fall I promise I'm not <laughs> drinking right now um, it would be okay if you were <laughs> I mean I think everybody's going to appreciate this conversation so I appreciate yeah. this but it is it's the uh, you know the the, the drug that is innovation, um, no, no pun intended in that space is just, it, it's something that you really have to keep an eye on because it can, you know, the newness that spikes at the time. And, and, and it is funny. It, it's a balance because I remember right when I was leaving the U S um, Crown Royal was just getting into and was probably a little bit late at the time to some of the flavored whiskeys. And it was mm-hmm. always just, you know, to the purists, it, it was just such a blasphemous thing to even talk about that we that Crown Royal was going to create a flavored whiskey of any kind. And and the world just evolved. Like and what happened, which, you know, was in in hindsight, which is always 2020, you can you can see that the world didn't knock Crown Royal, the base brand and and any of it, the provenance it had built, any of the quality it, it had established because they went off and made, you know, um, apple or peach or maple or whatever the case may be. It's just an evolved, it's an evolved consumer and a way to bring people into the brand. But certainly you can get, you can get lost in there. There's a few other brands that I, that I won't mention that um, (laughs) have sort of swirled over the years just by chasing that um, year after year or multiple times throughout the course of the year. Yeah, that's a really good point. 
All right. And so the third way to tell compelling stories that get attention is to connect to culture, which we've already alluded to. So we're going to bring this one home in a really, um, I think, descriptive way here. And this is all about being in touch and creating relevancy. And there are really two sides of this, but it all stems from really knowing and understanding what is important to your audience, like we've talked about a lot already. So on one side, if you can tap into an angle that's really authentic to the brand and your audience, you can create a lot of brand love here. You can start generating a lot of emotional connections that you can really start to own and creates a lot of tangible value for your brand. But equally as important is making sure you aren't tone deaf to the positioning and feelings of your audience, which is, again, why it's so important to understand your audience. But tapping into culture is more an art than a science. Totally. And really, really, really. And it takes Mm -hmm. a really good intuitive person that can really empathize and really provide candid feedback here of like what's going to work with this audience or what's not going to work with this audience, which means you should really have a person on your team that can authentically relate if you want to authentically connect. Okay. And I'm going to use a prototypical example here of such a bad one. I know. And we used it a couple of times. You know, it continues to pay. It's just like it's so bad. It continues to kind of show up as an example for a lot of reasons why you shouldn't do these kinds of things but uh this poor person the person who created is sitting under a bridge somewhere no they sure are to stop talking about it. <laughs> I know. Or they're getting their, their 15 seconds of fame. And they're like, gosh, right. me again? Woo-hoo. You know? But um, so the example here is Kendall Jenner and the infamous controversial Pepsi ad where she personally even got a ton of flack for offending the Black Lives Matter movement. That is a totally like quintessential example of a tone deaf way of participating in a culturally relevant movement. Right? Somebody did not do their homework there. Now, on the other hand, here in Cincinnati, in the Cincinnati Zoo, um, we leverage our prematurely uh, born baby hippo, Fiona, as a poster child for conservation and zoo support. I mean, that one's still a bit controversial, and even to this day, continues to be something that they use as um, a really big mark of helping to support the zoo, but it works. And the reason why that one works and the other one doesn't is because I think there's like a heroism that's associated with the latter that isn't evident in the former. And if you can't create empathy where, again, it just is so disconnected in your brain that the emotional piece doesn't resonate either. Now, a lot of people ask us, okay, in order to play in culture, do you have to be controversial? And we say no, if you can avoid it, that you probably should, because it's a really fine road to walk. And Many brands have jumped on the bad wagons of things like sustainability and organic and natural and good for you. But, you know, these are like more general cultural phenomenons. And if you could tap into them like very authentically, then they can work. But there's other ones that work just as well, like, you know, things that are more lifestyle oriented. And that's how you can really start to connect. As Mike was talking about these like occasions for drinking as a, using spirits as an example to your brand and the one that I bring up and the one that's proliferating a lot and the spirit of, of alcohol is the seltzers, right? So those are showing up everywhere. Everybody has a seltzer. Now, when I was in Nashville, we went to a bar and I wanted a seltzer because I was getting to that time of the night and they were out. <laughs> what time of the night is that, in? A little bit later than <laughs> five o'clock. 4.30. <laughs> but they were totally out because all the bachelorette parties had come and like basically like 
Cleaned them out. They cleaned them out. Yeah. There was not a seltzer to be had in the whole entire bar, right? <laughs> and so it's like that has become an occasion. That has become something that you know, it's a celebration type of um, moment. So, Mike, I know you have more examples on this one. So uh, please share. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's uh, it's one of those things that, you know, it's at the heart of probably everything that has come before it for, for me. And really, you know, so much of what you just said rings true. And I think what what brands end up doing and and it's an it's a natural it's a natural inclination to you know to want to make big swings and to want to make big statements yep. and and mm-hmm. to show up in a big way but you know p- personally and with the brands that I have worked for and worked with it, it's a I, I take a money ball approach to showing up in culture it's getting on base it's getting singles it's just being present in you know smaller moments that that matter to people and they happen every day a hundred times a day you know there's no there's no limit to you know a way that you can you can authentically show up in culture but what ends up happening is that people just sort of wait for these big moments and that's when that's that's when they get caught you know not being authentic and just and just chasing whatever the the topic of the day happens to be and you know i i I feel bad for honestly, as a as a marketer, I feel bad for everybody who was involved in in that Pepsi, Pepsi campaign because I know exactly how it can happen. I've yeah. I've been in rooms where, and as I'm sure we all have, where it's it's come very very close um, to something like that happening because you get you get swirled into groupthink and you know you believe as especially a brand of that size and scale that. You know, we have to say something. We have to do something. We're we're too big not to say something in a big way. And you know, you blink your eyes, and that and that commercial shows up. And um, I I can see how it happened. I mean, the, the people who asked how could something like this happen haven't been a part of those conversations yes. because I absolutely know how it could happen. Um, you know, so for us, uh, what really what we try to do is just once we. Um, you know, once we find the sweet spot between uh, what's happening, you know, once you once you narrow down who your ultimate um, audience needs to be, your your recruit target, you know, what's happening uh, loosely or largely in the in the category, and then what are the things culturally that sort of overlap both of those areas, and and really find that sweet spot. That's when the that's when the fun starts for us is where you know, we find that that center of that Venn diagram that you can go in multiple directions with. So it's hard to even put exact examples on it because, you know, the the places that it can take you are, are, are you know, don't have too many boundaries if you're willing to be creative and willing to willing to act small sometimes, you know, it's a it's a post here, it's, you know, it's a tweet at some point, and it's all in the in the effort to build a personality for a brand. So, you know, when something big does come up, you can say it with authenticity because you've actually been swirling around in that part of culture for, you know, for a long time. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's that's really where we try to get brands to is, is figuring out what those cultural moments are. And we'll spend most of our time in activation planning, just building out a cultural calendar, knowing that, um, you know, part of it, part of being relevant in culture is being able to act quickly to things that occur that you didn't plan. Uh, so, you know, for us, it's 
the, the saying is preparing to be spontaneous. So how do we, how do we play out a six month calendar knowing that, you know, the whole thing may have to be tossed up in the air at some point because there's something that has happened, you know, and it doesn't have to be earth shattering, world changing, but it can be big enough for us to want to go and, and comment on and, and be present within. So that's where we spend a lot of our time and it's, and it's tedious and, you know, there's a lot of fits and starts to it, but really it, it's, it's where the fun is as far as I'm concerned, just sort of examining and, and diving into the, all those different areas and culture. Well, and as you were talking through that, I think, you know, one of the things that Ann and I are constantly talking about with our clients is where you should and should not participate. Mm -hmm. And so I really love what you said first about participating in small ways, because that's one of the big things we see with our clients, too, is the knee jerk to be there and say something because you think you should, because Mm -hmm. something happened versus thinking about, okay, wait a minute, if I go back to my audience and what I represent as a brand, does this really make sense for me to even participate in the conversation? And then if yes, how am I going to authentically do that through the lens of what my audience expects from me and what I represent for them? And I I love the idea of the small moments because, you know, we've talked a lot about stunts. We have an mm-hmm. episode on stunts now on this show and how those can be, in theory, great ideas. I mean, as you were talking through, to me, it's a little bit of PTSD of being in rooms where you're like, the train has left the station. Can I possibly stop <laughs> this? Am I going to be yeah. able to get a handle on this? And sometimes I think stunts and other yeah. big... And, or or in, in all, sorry to cut you off, but in all honesty, am, am I driving this train? Yeah. No, exactly. 100%. And so, yes, totally empathize with how that can actually happen. But I think culture can just be a tricky one. And I think making sure that you're chugging along and you talked about, you know, the fits and starts and stops and all of that that happened, but really making sure that you're being intentional with everything that you're doing and then layering in culture when appropriate is where I think that additional magic kind of happens, right? We're sort of talking in terms of layers and I'm not going to overly preempt point number four, which will really bring this all home. But I think the culture piece can add a richness and authenticity to the experience or not, depending on how you approach it. Yeah. Yeah, completely. And there's, you know, the other, the other part to that is, um, you know, for me, there's, there's a people part of this too, you know, making sure that, um, you know, the right people are thinking about, about this and that the people who are thinking about it are actually immersed in some of the things that we're talking about. Now we all, we all can't be, um, you know, we all can't be experts in a hundred different areas of culture, but, um, there is there is a part of it that has to be authentic in that way. Otherwise, you're just sort of hypothetically commentating from the sideline. Yeah. Uh, and that that's that's what we're trying to build here. We're trying to find people who, who you know, are, are fitting in with the types of culture that we want to impact with our brands, which, you know, I think I think now more than certainly any time in my career, the value of of people right out of school or very early in their mm-hmm. career, uh, which I'm, I'm starting to, I'm starting to notice by what they're, what they're asking for is starting salaries as a, <laughs> as, <laughs> as an aside. Uh, yeah. They, they, their value has, uh, has been figured out, but it's really is true. They're, they're more valuable now than, than I was when I first came out of college because, you know, they've, they're, they're digitally native and they mm-hmm. speak a language that, you know, we had to teach ourselves and are still trying to teach ourselves. So 
you know, getting the right people involved and giving autonomy and, and some level of control over to somebody who, you know, frankly, looks like a child yeah. <laughs> in, in certain lights. And it's just yeah. the way it's the way that it is. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to, you know, it's it's a daily sort of a struggle to remember that, you know, that what they what they lack in experience, they totally make up for in just sort of intuitive understanding of the way the world works right now. Yeah, I think you guys made um, a, a two really important points. One is that it's so critical to have diversity on your teams and not just, you know, diversity with regards to you know, the way people look and that sort of thing. But that leads to the important part of diversity, which is mindset, which mm-hmm. is, you know, uh, the cultural diversity of what people are into. That comes from demographically, like from an age standpoint, like you just mentioned, Mike, but it also comes from what people are into and what people enjoy and what people appreciate and what circles they run in, because we all know about tribes and we know how important those tribes are to building our brands. And I think the other point of that is commitment. So it's very I mean, very great strategy. I love the strategy of like making the small bets. and But it's also a commitment to continue to make those small bets, right? Because you can't go in and out when it comes to culture. You can't just show up one day and make a comment and then something like significant, you know, goes by and then you don't make a comment for another like six months. And then all of a sudden you want to jump into something because that starts to really like starts to feign the, the inauthenticity part. So there has to be a level of commitment. You have to make sure that your brand is willing to commit to being present in those conversations on an ongoing basis because the worst thing that you know, can happen is either participating in a conversation that you have no right to participating in or doing the me too thing, mm. which we see a lot as well, which is like, mm-hmm. well, okay, um, it is, you know, LGBTQ month, so I have to say something, right? You know, and so I'm going to force my brand into saying something, even if my brand isn't authentically going to do that because everybody else is. Or yeah. my favorite is when they try, you know, give me a social calendar and they, they're looking for every day, there's got to be some sort of day. Well, today's donut day. Today <laughs> is like, you know, I, I love my second cousin day, you know? And so it's like, you know, trying to find a way for your brand to be able to participate there too, which is comes off as being very stressful and very um, inauthentic. So I love what you guys said there, which actually leads very nicely to the point. Was, that a, was to- that a knock on Kentucky? <laughs> I didn't think about it like that, but okay, our friends at the NKY Chamber are going to love that one. <laughs> Thanks, Mike, for keeping there was, it there real. Was a certain, there was an owner who I could never, just a, a small anecdote, uh, who I will remain nameless, but as the as the PR person, I could never get him to not say in an interview that you know the, because the bourbon industry was so small in Kentucky, he would say and at, never stop saying it as long as I worked with him that you know everybody everybody is con- in Kentucky is related. It's, it's just not polite to ask how. <laughs> <laughs> like you can't say that, <laughs> but he did. He said it every time. <laughs> I, yeah, I love that. That is actually very, very funny. And we love our Kentucky neighbors. So, we do. Um, yeah. And they're, they're more than welcome. To <laughs> Me too. I do too. Give us Cincinnati joke. Second home so, for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Just dish it back out. Um, but no, like I, I think that's... Um, 
Outside of that last <laughs> comment. I'm not even thinking that's a segue to the next point, but yeah, I'm going to move on. <laughs> and, that's, and that brings us to our fourth point about how to tell compelling stories that get attention. And that's to find an intersection of audience, category, and culture to glean your powerful insight. And Mike, you really set this up really nicely um, when you're talking about the Venn diagram and where you're trying to really make those things work in a way that you find that intersection that's going to anchor your story. And this is where a lot of businesses and brands give up because they're just like, oh, my gosh, this is so hard. It's just easier to just to tell a story I want to tell. And hopefully people like it. But again, this goes back to the very beginning, what we're saying. This is a difference between between telling a story versus a compelling story. So if you made it this far, do the hard work to, to finish this up and really start to glean those insights that are going to help you be able to tell a very compelling story. The whole point of this is to really kind of figure out a place that you're going to really transcend all of your marketing materials, all of your marketing um, strategies and communication. So from your brand story to your message tracks to your comms and marketing strategy, this becomes the anchor. And what this helps you do is have a really nice foundation, like we talked about, for making good choices in your marketing. So you're not chasing skews. So you're not trying to like totally reinvent your brand that you lose some continuity or familiarity and your legacy is gone. This becomes a place that you can then come back to in order to say, okay, where do I want to take this? What kind of choices am I going to make? And this is also becomes a point where you start creating those emotional connections, which helps you transcend just the basic functions of whatever your brand is serving or your business is serving and really start generating that brand love. All the brands we've talked about today have done that. They have, they have transcended their commoditized value and have really started creating a brand that people appreciate for moments in their life, for experiences in their life. And all of these things can be attributed back to the brand and uniquely back to the brand. And this is how you capture attention. So this is what is important. This is why this is not a wasted effort. So, Mike, you know, you probably have, again, some more thoughts about this one, um, especially since this is kind of how you've talked about how you create that really like powerful intersection that anchors everything and how you build from that. So you can you say more about that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I think, you know, there, there's, a, there's a few things to this one as well. I mean, one. Um, so very recently I was with, a I was with a client in a, in a message media training, um, a, a co-founder of a brand that we're working with and, you know, she's, she's so knowledgeable on, on the space and the subject matter, um, but almost to a, almost to a fault sometimes because mm-hmm. it gets, it gets so sort of spread thin over the course of, you know, a, a three or four minute interview or something that needs to needs to be more succinct. So, you know, a big part of this and why I, I believe, and it's a, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, I, I'm aware of that, that people who come from an earned media or editorial background are, are very well placed right now to, to start to carve out a bigger space for themselves within the, the entirety of the marketing mix um, is because that, you know, finding Finding the two or three key things to say is essentially, as earned media people, what it's a, it's a huge part of what our job has always mm-hmm. been. And more now than ever, you just have to be succinct. You have to be quick, and you have to cut through in a short amount of time. And you know the things the the things that we were working on were, you know, really just to, to find those three points. And at any and at any 
point, whether you're speaking on a panel or in an interview, you use, use those three points as, you know, the side of the swimming pool. If you're, if you're struggling, just get yourself back to one of these three points. And, you know, that's true in a five minute live TV segment, but it's also true when you're thinking about your overall marketing plan. Like, let's just get back to the three key things that, that we want to say and the places where we want to say them culturally. And if you can simplify it, it, it's, it feels from the outside, like you're, you're fencing yourself in creatively, but I've seen so much more creativity come out of those parameters that are put around it. than if you just say the world is our oyster, let's go, let's go talk about everything. Um, So that, that's kind of, you know, that's a point that we really try to hammer home. And then once you get to there, uh, it becomes a lot about, which we haven't talked a ton about, but it becomes about the where and the how, uh, mm-hmm. especially now. So, you know, everybody everybody we're working with now wants to be on TikTok. So I'm sure you guys have, <laughs> have seen this uh, a number of times, but it's uh, it's really funny to watch, to watch brands jump into it um, and the ones who are actually thinking about culturally what made TikTok the thing that it is. And when you're scrolling through TikTok and you see a brand that essentially just cut down a 15 second TV commercial and, and plopped it onto the platform, right. you're oh. like, they just, they just don't get it. They just don't understand that the platform is the cultural thing that we're talking about. So if you don't fully engage in the channel, then you're going to miss, you're going to miss the boat. Nobody's going to stop to watch your TV commercial on a platform that is literally designed to get away from it. So it's just understanding all those factors and how they and how they play together to make sure that um, you know you can be authentic in every situation that you that you find yourself in. And if you can't be authentic, don't be there because yep. because people will you know people will 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 smell through that or or see through it immediately. Um, there there is no more sort of trying to. Um, misdirect uh, a person uh, who's out there in the world now. They, they everybody knows the score, so you have to meet them at a place of authenticity. Yeah, I I love all of that, and I I think the the culmination of this is really really important. And when you said the thing about you know people get upset when they feel like they have to have parameters around what they're doing, we always talk about it the opposite way, which is once you build the discipline against these things where you know your audience intimately, you understand the category and how to work within it and then put that culture as part of it too. That's really where you get to an actual insight. And mm-hmm. you guys have heard me say many times before that too often what people say is an insight is actually an observation. Mm-hmm. And that's where I feel like people can really get into trouble. So this is where it should be fun, right? Because you've done your homework at this point. And so you've done all of the right things to set this up for success and then use those actual insights to show up where you should show up. And yeah, we've had the TikTok thing come up. I mean, I had mm-hmm. a, a client, I'm not even going to say who it is the other day, call me about this. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. But, you know, it was a shiny thing and they thought they had good intention with why they wanted to be there. But I think 
think that's the other side of this one, which is you don't knee jerk into things that are not appropriate for your brand or your audience because you just instinctively weed them out. As soon as it comes up, it's like, no, of course we would never do that. And then you're able to move on. And so I think that's where it's fun because the energy is really good because you're weeding things out just as much as you're creating these new awesome ideas. And that's really the the place of invention or creation that I think is where a lot of us in this industry thrive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, to- I totally agree. And, and, you know, what helps what helps me too, is just to think about it, to think about the whole thing in reverse, because that that helps, <clears throat> that helps avoid some of those situations you talk about, which are, you know, I've been in, I've been in rooms, and I'm sure you've been in rooms where, you know, the insight that ultimately lands as sort of the thing is actually just born out of a creative idea that somebody already wanted to do. So oh, you've, just, yes. you've just you've just essentially justified, uh, you know, the thing that you were always going to say anyway. And and we can all do that. You can post rationalize your way into anything, um, but really allowing yourself uh, and allowing and this is this is harder. The bigger the brand gets, and the more opinions that there are in the room to 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 really go through that process of thinking you know, culture and audience first, and then to the channel, all right, here's, here's the audience, here's what's happening in culture, here's what's happening in the category, here's the channels that, that are actually being consumed, you know, the fact that the, the fact that there's still TV commercials, full stop is, you know, still baffling to me and some, some days and, and then, and then from there, once you have your channel strategy, then you go to then you go to the creative idea. So yeah. mm-hmm. this is what they this this is what they're feeling. This is culturally what they're connected to. These are the places where they're absorbing that culture. Here's the thing we have to make, and that's how you can get yourself to an authentic TikTok, um, not the other way around. Not trying to squeeze a creative idea that already exists into a channel that it's not meant for. Um, so there can be a great deal of creativity in that, and it can open up. You know, I think it can open up a lot of avenues if people allow themselves the ability to do it. You know, and it's easy it's easy to sit here and say that. I know I know how hard that is in practice, especially when you start to, you know, think about brands that extend beyond regions and countries and mm-hmm. you know, the the idea that um, you know, what we always struggled with with Johnny Walker, uh, it, it is just such a it's a global brand, but by every every measure, it's a local brand that just mm. happens to be sold everywhere. Because every every country, every region within that country treats the brand a little bit different. Yep. You know, in some parts of the world, Red Label is is the most premium thing that that you could put on the table for your guests. And in other parts of the world, it's it you know Red Label is is not to be touched with a ten foot pole. So it's like, you know, how do you how do you try to take a an overarching insight and localize it and regionalize it. Um, and that is really, really hard work. Uh, and I don't know that, <laughs> I don't know that, you know, there's a few brands who seem to have done it well. Nike always comes up in that conversation, but I, I, I don't think you could fill two hands with brands who have nailed that on a global stage over the course of the last 10 years, because everything, um, you know, as much as we live in a global community in some respects, a lot of what people are consuming has been heavily personalized and regionalized. So you just sort of have to take that into effect or into account. Yep. That's a really, really good point. 
All right. So just to recap, how to tell compelling stories that get attention. First is to define your audience. Compelling stories that get attention start here. Second is to know your category. It's important to integrate familiar cues, but also critical defined points of differentiation so you become a brand versus a commodity. Third is connect to culture. This is all about being in touch and creating relevancy. Be careful not to try too hard to the point of inauthenticity. And finally, find the intersection of audience, category, and culture to glean your powerful insight. Think of it as a Venn diagram where you're trying to find the intersection of the three in order to find the ideal place to play in order to anchor your story. Are you craving a deeper dive immersion into the topics on our podcast? Then you will appreciate our virtual consultancy. Located on the shop page of our website, forthright-people.com, you can now download our digital coaching modules on vigilant leadership, culture building, and social strategy. For the cost of a book, you will get diagnostic tools and exercises to assess your current state and development tools to quickly and intentionally improve your proficiency. These are quick yet effective ways to improve your marketing savvy today. Check it out and let us know other topics you would like us to go deep on. And with that, we're going to go into the end of trenches question. We've already been giving a lot of real world examples. So this will just take it just a little bit tad further, double click down into some of the things we've been talking about. But everybody should be able to apply it and put it into practice. So the first in the trenches question. So I did the work, but I, the story I want to tell doesn't connect to my insight. What now? <laughs> and actually, you guys set this up nicely in the conversation where you were just having with regards to working it backwards, where we find something and we fall in love with an execution and then we try to backtrack into the insight. And really, if this has been like your mentality is if this is how you guys are coming up with things and it's not connecting, there's a big reason why. And if you aren't able to do it on your own, then you really need to get an agency like forthright people or smarts that are able to help you to, to see through this. Because a lot of times, as you, know, you guys both alluded to, you get so in it yep. <laughs> that it's not always easy to get yourself out of it. And so this becomes the really big objective of having somebody who's kind of out there, kind of seeing it for what it is, and then helping guide you guys through the process. And we've had a lot of conversation with brands and businesses where, you know, the other side of this comes out where they're saying like, well, we have this great story to tell and we should be getting a whole lot more money for it, right? Either through, you know, product loyalty, which we talked about is a very big question mark, or, you know, we should be able to charge more for it. And this is the place where we always start from because we say, well, if you want somebody to pay more for your product, then you have to create more tangible value and you create more tangible value through story. And so you need to be able to, really increase the value of your product by telling a better story. That's the way that you create a brand. So we've kind of hit this nail on the head many, many times. So there's the other side of that. And it's because like, you know, the, the, your story is the soul of your brand. Like we said, this is the, becomes the foundation of how you make all these decisions. It's how you avoid a lot of the commoditized language that we've talked about. Things like, I'm the best product, I'm the best, you know, we have the best customer service, we have a money back guarantee. Those things are now all table stakes. That is not giving you the brand elevation that you need. It's not creating those emotional connections. You have other brands who are saying things like, I can make your life better. I know how to make you happier. You and I get each other. This is what the power of the story is in order to create those emotional connections. You, you can build a billion dollar brand out of a laundry detergent. So you can build a billion dollar brand out of like basically almost anything. I'm going to say that if you're able to construct the right story and you're able to be able to develop it in the right way. So Mike, what's been your perspective here? I know you've worked on a lot of big brands. I know you're working on a lot of small brands, um, sexy brands, maybe not so sexy brands. What's your thoughts here? 
Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think the, the principles sort of stay aligned and I'll, I'll start with, I'll start with big brands because it, it, it gets more complicated, the, the bigger and um, more established a brand might be, but, uh, you know, using, using the, again, Johnny Walker as an example, um, you know, th- there was this thought at, at that time that I referenced earlier where, you know, the category, the whiskey overarching category seemed to be leaving without Johnny Walker and Scotch. There was this sense that stuck around for a while that, you know, keep walking as a campaign idea. And, mm-hmm. and what became more than a campaign idea. And I think that's the, that's really the crux of, you know, those few, those few brand ideas that sort of are able to, to, um, you know, to transcend time and generations and they last and they last because they're, they're able to be flexed for the moment. And there was, you know, there was a time where, you know, there there was a lot of loud, important voices who thought that that keep walking had run its course. And in retrospect, to think of to think of how ridiculous that that sounds, because it's, you know, it's it's probably in the top 10 of most of most infamous campaigns in in the world, <laughs> maybe ever. And it's like, what, what, why can't we just find the insight to match this too again. And ultimately that's where the work was done. It's like, all right, we're going to take this to the streets. We're going to figure out, you know, what keep walking means today that it didn't mean four or five years ago or 10 years ago. Um, So it comes back to just really spending the time to hammer home that insight uh, and really understand what's driving people. And, and it's, it's not, you know, in this case, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, it's just finding a way to reposition something um, that has worked for a really long time. It's just sort of changing, slightly changing the approach to what uh, to what it means. Um, and then with with smaller brands, it's really trying to trying to establish your identity. Um, you know, really figuring out what it is that ultimately you stand for, which is very hard for for young brands because Mm -hmm. depending on what stage of your life cycle you're in, you know, you're just trying to keep the doors open. And so it's really hard to, um, you know, it's really hard to, to be consistent or to take a longer term approach culturally because you just don't have time. (laughs) Uh, And that's what I've, that's probably what I've come up against most in the last year and a half is just, there's a sense of urgency that doesn't seem to be willing all the time to wait for the the, the groundwork of of solidifying a, a story, an angle, um, a place in culture. Um, but I I would always argue that it's worth it when you get there. So if you do, if you can buy yourself some time to invest in developing those stories, it, it's going to pay tenfold on the other side. Uh, it's going to give back in ways that you probably can't even imagine right now in your shareholder meetings or whatever the case may be, um, if you just give it a little bit of time. And that's always the hardest part, which I'm sure you guys have seen in, in your consultancy. The, you know, there's these brands and these companies that, you know, they judge themselves on a quarterly or monthly basis. Right. Um, and it's really hard uh, if one of those months doesn't trend the way that you hope it would from a business perspective to hang on to what you're trying to do culturally. Uh, so it's, it's just getting people to the point where they understand the, the ultimate benefit 
at the end of it. Well, and I think to your point, there's different levels of investment and maturity with brands, right? Mm-hmm. So it is, yes, you're right. It is one thing Ann and I see super often. Um, and it's a shame when you can't turn people on to the fact that if they did it now, they would be starting in the right place with far fewer variables than they're going to end up with. And oftentimes where we come in is where some mistakes have been made and this hasn't been done. And they're at an impetus where it's like, well, why is it not working? Which I think to the point of this question, right? I have my story, but it's it's not connecting. Well, it's probably because there was some work that was done not well or not done at all in the beginning. And so now you're facing these challenges. But I think you're totally right. And I think giving the example of Johnny Walker all the way back to smaller brands, had you not done the hard work or had Johnny Walker not done the hard work as a brand for all those years, you probably would have thrown the baby out with the bathwater and it would have deteriorated a brand that had existed for so long that had worked for so long versus saying, okay, wait a minute, there's a reason this has lasted this long. The problem has to be something else that's going on, not we're going to reinvent things from the ground up. Right, right. That's exactly right. And and there's a, you know, not to get too, you know, I think this is largely a strategic conversation, but there's a, there's a tactical element um, that I see too, which is, you know, people ultimately, people will come to us in the, in the first instance because they need a quote unquote PR agency. Mm. Uh, and that's the, that's, that's where the agency that I'm with now is, is born from tactically. It's what we're very good at. Yep. Um, but so I, so I, I try to paint the picture in that light. So there's this, there's this model that we've sort of come to use uh, around um, around recency for mm-hmm. a brand. So mm-hmm. yep. it, it goes back to that point of it's not only figuring out what story to tell, it's figuring out how you can tell it as often as humanly possible, because you need this, you need this drumbeat of conversation to, to stay relevant. So you can start to, you know, create that foundation. So really when a lot of, and I've seen it more with smaller brands will come to us and they, you know, they, they think they want or need a, an earned media PR strategy. And when you have, when you get through the briefing process and you realize what they mean by that, they want the name of their product or brand in the headline of <laughs> pick, pick a title. And maybe you'll get a couple of those throughout the course of the year. But if that's what your metric for success is, you're never going to get the recency you need to establish any sort of memory structure with the people you're trying to reach. So yeah. it's, you sort of build this this um, this model, which is including you, about you, and by you. So, including you is where the lion's share of your coverage has to come from, and that's what we'll spend most of our time thinking about. Because we're going to look at every possible cultural moment that we can attach the brand and the story to, and get you mentioned in in one way, shape, or form. And every once in a while. There'll be a place where where you can be the feature of one of of one of those stories, and then beyond that, um, we, you become a subject expert, and that's the buy you part. You know where you actually speak as a brand with authority, whether it's on a cultural topic or a brand topic or a category topic. Um, but that helps. I think that helps kind of paint the picture of what we mean because, you know, I, I've I've like we all have in this in this world, I've lost. I've lost pitches because there's a in in some part there's an old school mentality of 
you know, tell me that, you know, the editor of X publication and can get me a feature <laughs> mm-hmm. story placed in it. Yep. And I, I'm just not willing, even if we do, I'm not willing to sell our services on that, <laughs> on yep. that alone, because I don't think that's a, a good strategy for any consumer brand that wants to be culturally relevant. That's a weeding out metric. Yeah. Right. <laughs> sure. right. right. I mean, I think that really um, sets us up nicely for the next in the trenches question, which is how do I figure out where to tell my story? There's so many channels and you just alluded to this, Mike, and you've talked about this before, but this comes from knowing your audience and where, when, and by whom will they be the most receptive to your story? And then to the point you just made, the frequency of which you need to tell that story in order to be able to accommodate the including you, about you, and by you, right? And that, and that recency, that piece that you, I think is so critically important. So some tips here that we'll give, and then please, please build on this, is you know don't try to be everywhere. I mean, this is not necessary. We, we always suggest testing and learning to see which channels deliver the KPIs you want and then double down there. Trying to be everywhere just dilutes your message and you burn your money so, so quickly because most of us don't have enough money in order to be able to go all out and really rise above the noise on every single channel, nor do we have enough time or resources, right? Next is a leverage a channel that best exemplifies your story. And you just made this point that if your story is best told in like long form, you know, consider things like YouTube or blogs or podcasts. This gives you space to develop the story. And then you want to use a shorter form to kind of punctuate really important pieces. Like you can use then TV ads or billboards or social. And that creates a comprehensive immersion for your consumer. Because remember, your consumer needs to see something maybe five or seven times before they're actually able to really commit to actually wanting maybe to even try it or become aware or to dig deeper. And maybe you need people to see it to believe it. And maybe you should consider channels allow for this, like pop-up shops or events or demos or farmer's markets or craft fairs. You get it in the hands of these people and let them be your storytellers. And I know this is a big strategy, too, for spirits, as I've seen it happen a million times, and it's very, very effective, as you talked about the craft cocktails and stuff like that. But also, everyone in this day in SEO age needs to have a strong about me on their website. This is the soul, again, of your story. If you don't have a website, that is a problem for findability and credibility. So make sure you have one and make sure it's SEO optimized. And don't shy away from channels you don't understand. We just talked about TikTok. This is a big one here. <laughs> Find somebody who knows how to actually integrate that cultural phenomenon into your brand in a way way that's going to actually work. Don't just try to take your ad, like Mike said, and cut it down and shove it onto TikTok and think you're doing right by the channel. (laughs) And then don't always defer to your needing to be the one to tell a story. This is always a big one, too, is that sometimes brands get caught into the fact that it has to be a brand spokesperson who tells the story. They don't want somebody else to tell the story. Well, sometimes you can get a ton of instant credibility by leveraging influencers or, as you just talked about, Mike Earned Media. I mean, so make sure you're considering those things. Mike, what's your bills on this? Yeah, I mean, I love I love all of that again. I mean, you know, for me, it's one of the, uh, I'll try to, I'll try to succinctly tell this in, in a bit of an anecdote as well, which is another one from, you know, this, this newer world for me of responding to, to RFPs and to briefs that come through, which is, you know, people who, have enough awareness to say we need an agency to come in and help us find our voice culturally and find find the areas in culture to either partner with or sponsor or um, or activate around. So they have enough awareness to know that they haven't set that yet. But in the same brief, they'll say, and we want to do an event and we want to do, and <laughs> yeah. they start naming the things that they want to do. 
And my thing is like, how could you possibly know that if you don't know the first thing? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and that, so that speaks to a lot of what you just said, which is, you know, spending more time than you think it should take finding that cultural position, finding, you know, the sweet spot for your audience, and then really digging into the channel strategy and how, and creatively, uh, and this is where really good creative directors are worth their weight in gold because they can, they can take that insight and they can take a channel and then they can create something that is meaningful and specific for that channel. And that that's always, you know, it's a very hard thing to do and it's time consuming and it doesn't always work out perfectly, but you can really tell when it, when it goes wrong, which is, you know, in, in my experience, I'll walk, I'll walk into a bar in some country around the world and I see, you know, the purpose, the keep walking sustainability purpose message on a tabletop in a bar. And you're like, well, this, this really isn't the channel for that message. Mm -hmm, you have somebody mm -hmm. who's, you know, they're right that, you know, they're right on the goal line. You just need to get them to buy your drink. So at the point of purchase, we're talking about taste. We're talking about quality. We're not necessarily talking about our stance on diversity or whatever the, the case may be. So there's, even if those things are right for your brand, finding the right place to tell that as part of your story is just so hugely critical and something that is sometimes glossed over um, yep. because sometimes a media team actually shockingly isn't connected to to the brand team in the way that they should be mm. um, in in some in some respects uh, and it's just like you know you have part of you have your media team who's playing a numbers game with conversions and 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 programmatic and performance marketing and a brand team who's trying to build a brand and tell stories. And then you try to, you try to, you know, smush those two things together. And it's, it's usually not a very good product if they're not talking to one another very early on. Yeah. Well, I could talk all day on that front, but I won't, <laughs> I won't go down that path about those two teams, not always working together, knowing what the other one's doing. But yeah. I think this question is really good because it breaks things down in a way that I think is more digestible. And Mike, you've talked a lot about the episode throughout the episode about how important it is not to just to get the foundational strategy right, but to get these things right too. And I think, Anne, you outlined a really good kind of punch list for people to start to get them closer to where they should actually be, which I think is one of the places where this could also ultimately fail, right? You do all mm -hmm. the hard work at the beginning, you get it right, you got your story, and then you get overwhelmed by the channels and just how many there are and deciding where you should be and how that story should be told. So I think this is really good to get down to more of the nitty gritty of if you think about it through this lens, then go back to your story. And is that the right connection point? If not, move on to the next one, because I totally agree with you, Mike. We've seen those briefs, too, where it's like we need an agency and then we're going to tell you exactly what you want, what we want you to do and how. And it's like, mm -hmm. well, how did you get there? Because you just asked <laughs> us to come in and and now you have these solutions, which actually aren't solutions, I would argue. So yeah. there you go. Yeah. And no, I, I, I don't. I actually, that's so well put. I don't, uh, I don't have much to add to that. Other than, you know, it's not shocking that you and I agree on, uh, on many of these points. <laughs> <laughs> that, that leads us really nicely into our last in the trenches question. And this is a doozy one. Um, so I've tried pitching my story to get PR or earn media, but I can't get anyone to bite. What am I doing wrong? 
And Mike, this is your world. I'm just going to turn this one right over to you because um, I know you had to deal with me on a lot of this and a lot of calls <laughs> where I'm like, hey, how come you didn't get like the Wall Street Journal to cover our story about our newest brand skew of tie? Come on. <laughs> so uh, why don't you give the really, really of like what this life is really like? Yeah, I, it's 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 having the uh, it's having the memory of a goldfish when it comes to to pitching media. I mean, it's it's one of the things that has remained the same, um, you know, since I started um, way back way back when. It's just you just have to keep going with it. If you believe in your story, you believe in the message. You just can't you can't stop trying to get it out there. And I think that's that's where. I think that's probably the the first. Obviously, if it's if it's going on for months and months and you're just not getting traction, you need to look at your story. You need to look at mm-hmm. um, you know how you're how you're crafting it in the moment. Um, you still need to do you know for every for every story that's placed in PR, there's there's you know dozens and dozens of hours of research that has gone into why um, you know why it was a fit in that in that medium with that writer with that publication um so you know it's just the it's the hard work of our industry that has has sort of i don't know i don't want to sound like a like an old like an old crotchety man in the uh, (laughs) in the the business but there is this there is this sense of such instant gratification in everything that we do that pr has taken a hit because it takes time It, it takes it takes eight no's to get to one yes. And mm. that's on a, that's at a good, that's on a good week. Um, and it just takes the, the changing and crafting of the story and, you know, figuring out how it's going to work in one publication when it didn't work in another. And it's just the, it's the hard work of it all um, that, you know, I, I still, I have a number of people on my team who really, who really like it. And they, you know, at least, from what I've seen, just don't allow themselves to get discouraged by it. Cause I think that's the, that's the, the, the rate of people sort of coming in at an earned media level and not making it through those first couple years in my mind can be traced back to, you know, it's, it's sales and you have to, you have to be able to, to hear no way more often than you hear yes. And, and if that hurts too much, it's probably not the it's probably not the business for you <laughs> because no just comes a lot and you have to be okay with it sometimes and learn from it. Yeah, I think that's right on. And I think it goes back to the including you about you by you that you um so nicely summarized it is that this is a grind. I mean, without a doubt, it's a grind. And some people are in better position to get their stories through than others, and there's no doubt about that. Um, so you better have everything else developed around it, right? Where you think about your channel strategy and make sure your other channels are working hard as well, because this one is one that shouldn't be uh, that you put all your eggs in one basket in because it is a grind, even for people who are in it every day. And that's the other thing we will say is that you said, you know, you can't count on somebody to you know leverage their relationships in order to kind of get a story if the story can't is is it appropriate to be told through that channel or through that publication but it's also at least the benefit of somebody who actually has those relationships to begin with and that's always a place that we say to start is that if you're going to go try to do this thing on your own it is something that you need somebody who's 24/7 dedicated to in order to be able to build those relationships in order just to even get your emails or your calls like <laughs> responded to yeah yeah for sure and and 
and it's you know there's a what's happened with the media over the years too it's it's hard to it's hard to to zero in on those relationships like it was right. a, a while back because people just covered beats right so but now you have you know, you could have a, a war reporter who next week covers the best 10 coffees in Chicago. And it's like, you know, what, what, how do I zero in on this, this person who seems to, because there's, there's just a lack of people who are, you know, able to keep up with the 24 hour news cycle, you know, just covering everything. So, you know, the person who you think might be the right person for a story, you know, may, may be the right person for 10 of your stories. So it, right. it makes relationships that much more important because they could be covering anything at, at any given moment. Yeah, I think that's really important. All right, our third and final segment when we have a guest is to turn it over to them. So, Mike, I'm going to turn this over to you to wrap up. So please, anything that you thought we might have missed or you know, please talk about smarts some more or tell us and tell us where we can find you. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate the uh, I appreciate the airtime for it, and um, you know, just to to answer your last question first, so smarts uh, at smarts.agency is a, is our website, and you can kind of see there. Um, again, we've we started as a we're, we're quite a history in the UK, um, and have just moved over to the US, but with with a lot of uh, resource and experience coming along with us. So we're we're a startup in time sense, but um, we have we have quite a bit of resource that allows us to act as if we've been here for quite some time, including uh, the people who who we have working for us at the moment. Um, you know, with all with deep understanding of the uh, um, you know of the market and of the categories that we're in. So, and and again, what I would say about us uh, is that you know we are uh, a cultural comms agency um, with with specialties in earned media and influencer engagement and third-party partnership probably as our, our sweet spot, the mm-hmm. three areas of activation. Um, but really where we like to operate is, is with brand owners at that sort of strategic level, um, you know, working through culturally how a brand um, comes to, uh, comes to life uh, through various channels. And, you know, if, if it's, if it's a tool we have in our, uh, in our toolbox to activate, we absolutely will. But, um, we would we much rather would just see the right the right tool for the right job and whether we activate that or not um, you know is secondary to doing the right thing for the for the brands that we work with so uh, you know we're really we're really interested in brands that have a true a true want to grow uh, from a cultural place um, whether that's you know established brands who want to maybe change direction or or double down on some things or new to world brands who are just trying to, to establish themselves. Uh, so we, um, yeah, I think that's, that's, a, that's about all I can, uh, I can say about smarts We're we're young and hungry uh, in the market. Uh, and me personally, it's, uh, it's just great to be back, uh, be back in the U S after uh, um, six or seven years abroad, which we absolutely loved. Um, but just to be back uh in a, in an agency environment where we get to think about so much, it, it was, uh, you know, there, there was, there was a time there where literally I would wake up and go to bed thinking about scotch and, and realize <laughs> that that was, that was a hundred percent of my non-family thought process. And to be able to be free of that, I think sort of helps um, all the different brands and, and clients that we work with. 
Yeah, that's that's awesome. And we're so happy to have you today. So thank you so much for for joining us. And uh, just to recap, how to tell compelling stories that get attention. First is to define your audience. Compelling stories that get attention start here. Second is know your category. It's important to integrate familiar cues, but also critical to define points of differentiation so you become a brand versus a commodity. Third is connect to culture. We talked a lot about this today. This is all about being in touch and creating relevancy, but be careful not to try too hard to the point of inauthenticity. And finally, find the intersection of audience, category, and culture to glean your powerful insight. Think of it as a Venn diagram where you're trying to find the intersection of the three in order to find that ideal place to play in order to anchor your story. And with that, we'll say go exercise your marketing smarts. Still need help in growing your marketing smarts? Contact us through our website, forthright-people.com. We can help you become a savvier marketer through coaching or training you and your team or doing the work on your behalf. Please also help us grow the podcast by rating and reviewing on your player of choice and sharing with at least one person. Now, go show off your marketing smarts.